Welcome to part two of my conversation with the legendary Robbie Robertson of The Band. In the next hour, we're going to talk about the culmination of The Band and the last waltz and how that all came together, but also some of the difficulties around The Band's dissolution and the loss of friendships and relationships there. We're going to talk about Robbie's solo career and some of the amazing music he's put out in that regard over the last 20 years and the influences, where that came from, talking about people from Danielle Lanois to Fats Domino, who died shortly after this conversation occurred. We're also going to talk a little bit more politically with Robbie about life as an Indigenous person, how that was growing up in Canada, and how that has affected him as an adult as he was on his way to be honoured by his home at the Six Nations Reserve just after this conversation took place. I'm David Hurley. Thanks for listening. It's a fascinating glimpse into a side of Robbie Robertson, not as well known as the band story. One of the revelations of um, your solo albums was your singing voice, which is very affecting. Uh, And of course, you never sang on the band albums, except for The Last Waltz. One of my favorite songs was always Out of the Blue. Why did you sing Out of the Blue? Why did I? Yeah. Um, I was... Well, Richard was supposed to sing that, and uh, and there was quite quite often I'd when I would write a song and I would play it for who I thought should sing it in the group. Yeah, they quite often would say, "Oh my God, you should sing this. It sounds great." You know, when your interpretation of it, the sound of a, and I've and I was like, I had thought in my in in my vision of this music, that my place in this was not to sing, play the solos, write the songs. You know what I mean? It was it it threw off the balance, right? And there was something beautiful in the balance of the band that it was a real band. It wasn't a singer with his shirt off and a guitar player you know, and some other guys that played with them. This was really a unit. And what Garth did was as magical as what any of us could do. And that made it a balance. And for me, in whatever my cinematic influence or whatever, but I thought if I write it and, and cast it and kind of in my own mind, if I'm directing this thing in a way, then it becomes an an evenly balanced thing. Because if you're writing, you know, most of the music, things can become weighted in a different in a, in a different way. So as the, it ultimately did, maybe, eh? Well, maybe ultimately, it, it, because I I had responsibilities. I had some more responsibilities. And the other writers stopped writing. Yeah. Which I was disappointed in. You know, I mean, it was mainly Richard, you know, and it wasn't because, because we got together a lot and tried to work on things and something was missing and he didn't understand what it was. So far be it for me to understand what it was. Um, but I was sad and disappointed that we couldn't do our thing more. I really liked it. I liked when he, him and I wrote this song, Whispering Pines. 
or anything that we wrote together. Yeah. Um, there was something different about what either one of us would have done on our own, and I liked that. And there was a thing, too, in that period of writers, whether it was Lennon and McCartney or Jagger and Richards or these collaborations that were really admirable. And it was even a throwback to Tin Pan Alley, you know, when all of those writing teams and even the Brill Building. Yeah when it was Palmas and Schumann and Lieber and Stoller and all of that, there was something about that that I really loved. And so I wasn't thrilled to have to take on that responsibility alone, but I had to do whatever we needed to have done to the best of my ability. So, And I was, since the very beginning in the group, I got the job from writing songs. And, you know, so I was the one in this group that had this songwriting chip or something always. And so, you know, it it went to its natural place. You have talked about how at times you've talked about how the last waltz was not intended to be the end of the band. Maybe just the end of the band as a touring entity, but perhaps like the Beatles, you'd go on to continue to make music. I've also read you say that you were kind of spent by that period of time, that one of the reasons why you didn't make any music other than soundtracks for another 10 years was that you didn't have anything to say. And you were seeing a lot of people out there producing records, even though they didn't have anything to say and you didn't want to be like that. So where's the, were you really done in 77 too, or was it just the other guys? It had built to a certain place. And and because we had had some beautiful high points, and so that becomes the barometer, and you start comparing everything to those moments. And when you see something that, you know, I was, I, I was looking at it like a boxer who was, you know, had gone past his prime, and, and I was... And there was, at this stage in 1976, drugs were such a big part in the music world. And people were dying, you know, as we know, many died. Friends of ours, people that we admired, that, you know, we, it was terrible that, that we had lost them. And when we were out on the road, and there was a lot of times when Richard really wasn't doing well. There was sometimes when he had to be rushed to the hospital, and I thought, "Oh my God, we, I, you know, we don't want to see one of our own go down here." And we were all questionable in our lifestyle, and we weren't alone. We didn't know any other bands 
that were just all, you know, perky and fine. You know, <laughs> Every, everybody uh, was in, demons. It seemed like everybody was indulging to one extreme or another. And so when you recognize, and, and, and it was like, we don't want to do this in front of people. We don't want people to see this a weakness. We don't want to see somebody. We don't want the audience watching this crumble. My God, you know, we had done this and been there and all of these things. So in getting in a huddle, I, you know, we were like, we've got to figure out how to help one another right. in this. And one of the ways to do that is we got to get out of the way. We've got to, whatever we're going to do to fix this and to get on top of our game is we're going to have to go behind the curtain to do this. So let's bring this whole period to a conclusion and let's bring it to a very musical and proud conclusion. And then everybody, because there was talk, you know, Rick was talking about he wanted to make a record, you know, and there was, Levon had had thoughts of something that he'd like to experiment with. Right. And he wanted to do something with Paul Butterfield and Muddy Waters. And <clears throat> he had other ideas and everybody did. And I thought, maybe we need a refresher course that we've been locked in our own room for so long. Maybe we just need to be able to breathe for a minute. Right. So let's bring this to a conclusion. Do the last waltz. What an honorable thing to do in thankfulness to music and all these opportunities that we've been afforded. And, and then... We'll take a breath. And then after everybody feels a little bit better, and if we need some help, you know, in taking care of one another, and that we'll get that, we'll do what needs to be done, and then we'll come together and make some music above anything that we've ever done. It's like poetic, beautiful ambition. And so that was the idea. So then, after the last walls, and we had work to do, but it was drifting. And everybody must have felt a sense of relief at coming to this place, that we didn't have this obligation to come together and do what we had been doing every day for 16 years, right? So... We'd be like, all right, well, let's, come on, we're going to get in the studio and we're going to do this. We have to finish up some work on the last waltz and we have to finish up our last uh, record to the record company so we can release the last waltz and all of these things. And there was a hesitancy for everybody to, we, we didn't see anybody showing up with their full armor, right? Right. And sometimes not showing up at all. So it was like the writing on the wall, in a way. And recording this song out of the blue, you know, I'd written this. 
It was part of the last wall suite. It was all, it was in waltz time, triplets, and all part of this, finalizing this piece. And I went to the studio. We had recorded the song, and I had just done a scratch vocal on it, you know, for for us to, to know where we were in the song when we were laying it down. And then it was time for Richard to sing it, and he didn't show up. Out of this world, out of this mind, out of this love for you, out of this world, out of the blue, out of this love. So I sang it, uh, and uh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and just to get it done, you know, just because I was there, and we, you know, and it was like, you know, I had no choice. So I, I, I sang it, and uh, yeah, and uh, that's what you do <laughs> in a situation like that. Is mm-hmm. you know. So the first solo album, the Robbie Robertson album, um, fantastic album. I love so many songs on there. But Somewhere Down the Crazy River was a song I'd never heard anything like that before. Is there a story behind that? How did that come about? Well, Daniel Lanois had something to do with the setting on on how this took place, that we were in the studio and I had written the music for this song. Right. And it was like a score, almost, a movie score. Why do you always end up down at Nick's Cafe? I said, uh, I don't know. The wind just kind of pushed me this way. She said, hang the rich. It had this, you know, a vibe to it, as we say, right? And a mood and everything. And and the collection of musicians that Daniel and I had put together did something quite unique on this. Did he find Sammy Bodine or did you find Sammy Bodine? I found Sammy Bodine, yeah. Okay. But he found Tony Levin, the bass player, right. and Manu Cachet, the drummer, who had played with Peter Gabriel right. when Daniel produced Peter's record. So we were we had tried some different musicians, and I wasn't really that happy with the results we were getting. And I mentioned that. To Daniel, and he was like, "Oh my God, yes, we should absolutely get Manu and Tony and and a fellow from Canada that Daniel had worked with too, a guitar player who did something that was the opposite of what I 
do. His name is Bill Dillon. Okay. And, and there is, he is a sonic maestro. He makes sounds. It isn't about fingering and hot solos or anything. It's just gorgeous sounds that he would make. And it was mysterious what he was doing. And, as a, and he's a wonderful guy, too, and an unlikely suspect. He doesn't seem like this guy that this would be coming out of, which makes it even better. So the combination of us together, and we record this song, and Daniel introduces me to a strange instrument called an omnichord. And so I wrote the song on this omnichord, and it's a thing you push buttons on it, and it makes different things happen. And uh, so anyway, I wrote this thing, we recorded it, and we loved the feel of this. I didn't know what it was quite as a song yet. And I was approaching it from a cinematic point of view, like score. So we record this track. I love the track. And the track is playing, and there's a microphone sitting in front of me. And Daniel asked me about something. And I told him this story about an experience down south at one point, and and it incorporated things in New Orleans and in the, you know, Delta. and, And I was telling him this story, and the track was playing and the microphone was on. And then after that, Daniel said, I want to hear this story. Play that back again. And so we played it back, and he said, I think that this is a clue to what this song could be. Right. And and when we heard it, and the sound of my voice and this storytelling element and everything, so then I went and I wrote this thing to fit the track, and and it was that collaboration, though, that made this unusual, like when you're saying hadn't quite heard something like that before. Uh, neither had we, <laughs> and so it was. It, it just felt like a very interesting experiment. No, I like it. I like it. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> you like it now, but <laughs> I'll learn to love it later. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned New Orleans, and I went to New Orleans because of Storyville, your second oh. solo album, which was all about New Orleans. And you had Dr. John at the last waltz, and you used Alan Toussaint as your horn arrangement, uh, dating back to the Academy sessions. Where did you, I, I know about the Mississippi Delta trips when you were 15 and 16. When did you discover New Orleans and get that feel for New Orleans? It was part of that period of time. Here's a funny thing. Before Ronnie Hawkins, I was in a little group in Toronto called Little Caesar and the Consuls, okay? Yeah. And there was two guitar players in it. And the other guitar player was Gene McClellan, the guy who wrote Snowbird. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, who later on, you know, he had a patch over... One eye and uh, 
Um, but anyway, we were kids playing in this group, Little Caesar and the Consuls. And the guy, whoever he was, Little Caesar himself, played piano and only sang songs of New Orleans. So he sang the songs of Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns, Rockin' Pneumonia and Boogie Woogie Flu and and, and uh, Don't You Know Yakimo and Fats Domino and Smiley Lewis. Didn't know Professor Long here? He might have. He might have. And I might not have known that. Right. But anyway, in this group, I thought, these songs are incredible. This guy... You know, I don't know whatever became of him because I never saw him again af- after that. But it, there was two hot groups in Toronto. One was called The Gems mm-hmm. and one was called Little Caesar and the Consuls. It was Bobby Blackburn in The in the Gems. So anyway, I just played for a short while in this group. But they it, 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 it was... a a door opening to me of to the music of New Orleans because I heard some songs that I hadn't been acquainted with before. And I thought, I love this kind of music. So then I started exploring it. And then after I joined Ronnie Hawkins and we were playing the Chitlet circuit down there, and we would be playing in Louisiana and Texas and Oklahoma and yeah. all around that area. New Orleans just became an obvious place, you know. And the first time I experienced it, and, and with this music in the back of my mind, I thought, this is the most incredible place in the world. Wow, who figured this out? And that all of that music came out of here, and it was different than other rock and roll. It it had its own thing completely and was influenced by the Mardi Gras Indians and all of this gumbo sound. It was fantastic. And through that, I became knowledgeable about Alan Toussaint, Mm -hmm. who when he was 18 years old, wrote and produced Mother-in-Law with Ernie Cato singing it. So <clears throat> I became a New Orleans, big easy kind of guy, you know, from, from that time on. Just a shadow in the street light, just a shadow on the wall. A silhouette facing the darkness. I've been waiting for your call. Go marching in the night parade We'll be marching in the night parade It is a remarkable city. Have you been post-Katrina? Yes, I have. And is it okay? It's still recovering. And I did a thing um, a few years ago. I had this idea... And I told the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 
that I wanted to bring together Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, and Jerry Lee Lewis in New Orleans for a summit. These are the fathers of rock and roll that are still with us. And they thought, wow, why haven't we done that before? That's incredible. And I did. And to see these four guys together, and and by by this time, you know, they're getting up there in years, and one guy can't walk, and one guy can't hear, and the other guy doesn't <laughs> know where he is. And like, it's all of these things, but it is so beautiful at the same time. Um, so th- that was a great honor for me to be able to do that, and that we got to do it in New Orleans. And we did it in New Orleans, too, because Fats is there. And and Fats, you know, I don't I don't think he travels anymore. Right. But little Richard came down. He lives outside of Nashville. He came down on his bus. Chuck came in with his son, and Jerry Lee came in. Uh, ah, it was just you know, for for me, just you know, yeah, it would be a special, a thing. little a little piece of heaven. Yeah, yeah. Since we're talking about other people you've worked with. Your relationship with Eric Clapton's always interested me because on the one hand, you're obviously Buds. Uh, he plays on the last waltz. He's all over how to become clairvoyant. And at the same time, potential rivalry there. He wanted to join the band and you're like, well, we already have a guitarist in this operation. Uh, maybe we don't need you. And all that seems to get summed up in that classic guitar duel you have on further on down the road in uh, mm-hmm. in the last waltz. What's the nature of your relationship with Eric Clapton? Uh, he's a dear friend, and I saw him not long ago. He was playing in Los Angeles, and and we have a ritual that we have these lunches together, and we uh, and we talk about music and life, and and just always have a grand time, and. Uh, I love him dearly, and uh, and he's still one of the most remarkable pl- guitar players that's ever walked the earth. And uh, so, I don't know. I think that we'll be hanging out as long as we can. Yeah, he has a Canadian connection, right? He does. He does have a Canadian connection. And he, when he talks about it, he has a some kind of a, a a warmth in his heart for his connection to Canada. He's expressed that to me over the years on more than one occasion. Hmm. Grail Marcus quoted you as saying, music should never be harmless. What does that mean? Um, I've, I, you know, just with so many things, I, you know, with art, with movies, with music, with any of those things that gives us chills, that edge is really important, I think. It's part of that balance. It's part of something not being too cute, too nice, too soft, too whatever. And I think that because in Canada, you know, people can think of Canadians is is being nice people. Yeah. And I've wanted to help balance that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, it feels to me like in the last 20 years or 30 years, you've become more and more in touch with the Indigenous side of your background and your history. Um, first of all, have you experienced discrimination in your life as a result of being Indigenous? I've, you know, I because my mother, my mother had an experience herself when she was sent to live in Toronto when her mother died. And she, she had an aunt that lived here. And this is where I say this in my book, that she was told, be proud you're an Indian, but be careful who you tell. So I grew up with this. She was very clear about her growing up on the reservation. It wasn't a pretty picture. It was she carried a lot of pain with her. So just because I could I I could get away with you know when I was young and going to school and someone would say hey I'm Irish and somebody would say I'm Italian and you know it, it would go around you know the circle of thing and they'd say you know so I said well I'm you know I'm half Mohawk and half Jewish and they would be like what <laughs> You're what? <laughs> and I thought, maybe I just shouldn't bring this up. Right. So for a long time, I just I just said, I'm Canadian. Right. You know, and you know, and I've never I've never been I've never gone into a restaurant and them say you can't eat in here. Um, but I I feel it. I I know what it is, and and mostly through the stories that my mom's told me. Right. Um, do you have any, we're, we're, as a country, still trying to come to grips with this great social tragedy that we have um, that's part of our history. Um, and everybody seems to feel that it's, you know, the next generation. We got to get to the next generation. How do you think we can help Indigenous kids in this country? Education. Education and more education. Right. And, and affording that to people that that live in this world that's stuck in the middle, the old ways, the old world, the real Indians, it doesn't exist anymore. In the modern world, it's like, well, there's no place for you here. You don't belong here. So they're stuck in this nowhere place in the middle. And when you're stuck, and, and John Trudell, I don't know if you knew, know who the poet John Trudell was, and he was part of the American Indian movement, and he was a friend of mine. And uh, But anyway, he was saying, when you're lost in this, that you don't belong here and you don't belong there, and, you know, and, and people have tried to bury you since, you know, the white man's existence in this continent, you want to put yourself out of your misery. Drugs and alcohol are all you have to reach for. It is one of the worst stories, you know, we, that we've ever heard. I recognize in Canada an effort, an effort and an awareness that some improvement, some progress has to take place in this. And there is movement. It's too slow. 
It's too cruel. But there is some movement in comparing it to some things that are happening in the United States and in the Dakotas. It looks much better. Right. So, and, and uh, this Saturday, I'm going to Six Nations and they're having a huff homecoming and a lifetime achievement for me. Right. And they're presenting me with my papers to the Mohawk Nation. So I'm... They need role models too, right? Well, they do need role models. But, you know, Tonto was from Six Nations. Jay Silverheels, the famous Indian who was the sidekick of Lone Ranger, (laughs) was from Six Nations. And from Six Nations, also Graham Greene is from there. Uh, Gary Farmer, this young, cool musician... Uh, Derek Miller. Okay. Uh, so anyway, I feel like I'm I'm part of something, and one of the reasons that I'm really looking forward to going there is to be able to pass on a bit of a message to say it's the old thing. Hey, if I could, if I can go out in the world and make some noise, you can too. Right. You know, you just got to make it a little bit louder than me. Yeah. <laughs> um. What are you listening to right now? I'm listening to a lot of stuff right now. Just a lot of music. What's the name of these uh, this group, the Brothers from Montreal? Um, huh? Bar? The Bar Brothers. Yeah. What's something that? something cool with that group. Things that come out of Montreal always surprise you. I, I, I think Arcade Fire is terrific. And there's another Canadian that I like from Vancouver. I think she's from Frazee Ford. Have you ever heard that name? I have not. She has a great sound. I'd love to record with her sometime. I'm just drawn to her sound. Um, But anyway, I'm listening to tons of stuff and mostly new. Mm. I'm not right now listening to... Uh, Do you have to force yourself to listen to new stuff? No. As I get older, it gets harder and harder. My mind no, wants I, to retreat love, to the comfortable. I love searching. I love searching. And uh, and I have, you know, anyway, I'll just pull this up while, while you're asking me questions, and I'll, I'll give you some more specifics. Right. Oh, that's where it is. All right. Sorry. So what else can I uh, tell you that you don't need to know? It's been a few years since How to Become Clairvoyant. And you posted on Instagram today a picture of yourself with a guitar saying you've got something brewing. Is there something new we can look forward to coming from you? Oh, yeah. I'm deep into a new record. And uh, and very, uh, very experimental. Some of it even throws back to some of my childhood experiences here. Uh, that just came up in the songs. I, I didn't. I wasn't aiming for that. It just showed up, and I, and because of the writing I've been doing, and I'm writing volume two of my autobiography. Right. Um, so these things are stirring around, and I can't afford for them to sometimes get leak into the music. You know. Um, I like the national. 
I like the war on drugs. I like the David Byrne and St. Vincent when they do stuff together. What else have I got in here? See, I would not have taken you for a David Byrne guy. You like the talking heads back in the day? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're great. And there's a group called Fink that do some things that I, I enjoy. Um, but anyway, on and on and on, I ha- I have... Well, you've given me some things to look up here. Tons of playlist things. And, uh, do you ever think of doing one of those curated shows for Apple Music or Google Music or something where they have people? I don't know. I don't think about that very much, but... You know, you never know what's around the corner. Oh yeah, I've got just tons of things here that that I'm uh, I'm checking out. So you know, I I like it. Yeah, I like it, and I and I'm and I'm not somebody who thinks why back in the day that's when music was really good, and I think it's always good, and it's just a different world now that we have to that we have to dig a little bit deeper because the music business has become, you know, you know, so broken apart and everything. But I like the search. I've always liked the search. Well, I look forward to what you have coming up. It will be, I'm sure, as compelling as everything that you've ever done. And I really want to thank you, not just for being here with me today, but for all the joy you've brought into this world. You're a great man. Oh, I... <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Hurley Burley. Don't forget to post your useless Hurley Burley selfie on Instagram or just send them to us at thehurleyburley.com and we'll put them up there. And if you're so inclined, please give us a review on iTunes. I have a pickup, guys. <laughs> what? There was a, a really grotesque sound when you asked him, you asked Robbie, uh, did you like Obama? Those were your exact words. Yeah. And Robbie said, yes, I did. And right in the middle, somebody hung some weird spade on the wall. Right. And it's not usable. Can, can we repeat that? Did you like Obama? Yes, I did. Just so I had. Yeah. Is that all right? What did you do? <laughs> <laughs> 